Good morning. It's good to be together this morning. If you have your Bibles, let's go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, if you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to follow along with me, we're going to be looking at the first two chapters of the book of Job this morning. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're going to be working our way through Job chapter 2 and verse number 13. In the late 1800s, there was a man named Horatio Spafford. He was a very successful individual who lived in Chicago. He was a successful attorney. He was a successful real estate investor. He had an amazing family, beautiful family. A wonderful wife named Anna. He had four young daughters. And finally, their last child was a son. Five children in total. When he came to the year 1870, he thought that his life couldn't get any better. He thought that he was at the absolute peak of his life. But when the year turned to 1871, Spafford's life took a pretty dramatic turn for the worse. If you're familiar with the Great Fire of Chicago, it took place in 1871. As a real estate investor, Spafford lost a fortune in that fire. A few weeks later, his youngest child, his only son, died of scarlet fever. He and his wife decided that the family needed a vacation. They had experienced so much loss and so much grief over just a period of a couple of weeks. They decided that they needed to, to spend a couple of months away from Chicago. So they decided to spend at least two months in London, England. Spafford decided to go ahead and send his wife Anna and his four daughters across the Atlantic Ocean to London while he stayed back in Chicago to finish up a few things at work. He was planning to join them shortly. As the ship with his wife and his four daughters was crossing the Atlantic Ocean, it was involved in a collision. The boat ended up sinking. In that tragedy, about 200 people died, including all four of Horatio Spafford's daughters. His wife was one of the few survivors. She finally made it to London, England. She sent him back a telegram to Chicago saying, safe, alone, what do I do? Immediately he got on a boat and he began crossing the Atlantic Ocean going to be with his wife in London, England. His captain was aware of the tragedies that he had experienced. Whenever they came to the spot where his wife and his daughter's ship went down, the captain pulled him aside and told him, hey, this is the spot where your four daughters drowned. Take just a second to think about the trials in his life. He lost a great fortune. Lost all five of his children, his four daughters and his only son and now he's standing on a ship in the middle of the ocean standing in the exact place where his four daughters met their death while it might not always be to that extreme one thing that I think all of us recognize is that life is hard 
Sometimes life can be so challenging. Sometimes life can be so difficult. Life yields very painful circumstances in our lives. Circumstances that we have no choice but to deal with. Circumstances that we have no choice but to endure. Sometimes it seems like it's one after the other. When it rains, it pours. Trial piles on top of trial, and it begins to weigh so heavily. It begins to weigh so heavily on our shoulders. It begins to weigh so heavily on our hearts, causing great difficulty, challenges, and pain in our lives. But you don't really need me to tell you that, do you? I'm willing to bet that you've been there. I'm willing to bet that this is something that you know by experience, whether it's the result of loss, disease, illness, depression, anxiety, strained family or friend relationships, whether it's the result of a divorce, or whether it's the result of your own decisions. I'd say all of us in here know that life can be hard. Life can be challenging. In life, we go through so many different kinds of trials. I think we see that so clearly in the life of the individual that we're going to be studying this morning. A man named Job. As we turn our attention to the first couple chapters of the book of Job, I want us to begin by noticing the trials that he went through. All of the loss that he experienced. His trials come in two different rounds, two cycles. The first one is in chapter 1, the second one is in chapter 2, and as we read through this story, as we study through these first couple chapters in this book, we see that his trials had a purpose. It wasn't just happenstance, it wasn't just a stroke of bad luck, but there was a purpose sitting behind all of the difficulty that he went through. Let's begin by talking about the first round of his trials coming in chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. When you read through and study through that section of Scripture, messenger after messenger comes to Job. The way that I picture it, one messenger comes to him in his house, and as soon as that one leave, leaves, the next one steps in. And all that they bring is bad news. All that they bring is news of tragedy. In chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, the first messenger comes. Brings a report to Job that the Sabians fell on his territory and killed with the sword all, not just some, all of his oxen, donkeys, and the servants who were tending to them. Remember, back in this time, oxen and donkeys and servants, that wouldn't have just been for fun. These weren't Job's pets. These were Job's livelihood. If we go back to chapter 1 and verse 3, we find at the very end of that verse that this man, talking about Job, was the greatest of all the people of the East. Talking about physical possessions, talking about physical riches, nobody in the world was richer than Job. And as a result of that, a little bit earlier in verse 3, he had 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many servants tending to them. That's what he has in chapter 1 and verse 3. But when you come to the end of chapter 1 and verse 15, he doesn't have any of it. The corpses of his oxen, donkeys, and servants are laying out in the field. They have all been slain with the sword. Then the second messenger comes. Reports to Job that the fire of God fell from heaven. More than likely a, a lightning strike. A lightning strike fell from the sky and killed on the spot. All of Job's sheep and the servants tending to them. Back to chapter 1 and verse 3. At one time, Job had 7,000 sheep. 
and enough servants to take care of them. Now he has none. Imagine what his thought process would have been like as these messengers come in and then they come out and it's one after the other. Maybe Job at this point was thinking, how in the world could this get worse? He's losing his possessions. He's losing his riches. But then a third messenger comes through the door and reports to Job that the Chaldeans, another people group, divided up into three different groups and invaded his land. They took all of his camels and the servants who were tending to his camels. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, Job at one time had 3,000 camels. Now he doesn't have any. Because all of them were taken away. The first three messengers report that Job lost everything that he had. All of his possessions, all of his riches. He was the richest man in his part of the world. There wasn't anybody richer than the man that we're talking about here. He's lost all of it just like that. While those first three messages, I think, would have been painful, perhaps the most painful message came In chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, the fourth messenger comes through the door and reports to Job that his children were having a feast together, as they oftentimes did. A strong wind blew and beat against the house that they were gathered under. It hit the four corners of the house. The house ended up collapsing on them and killing every single one of them. Going back to chapter 1, and this time verse number 2, Job had seven sons and three daughters. Ten children total. His quiver was full. If you look in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he cared about his children. He loved his children more than anything else in his life. He wanted them to be spiritually strong. He wanted them to be in the right relationship with God. The text says that when his Children would get together to have a feast like they're having in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. When they would get together, when it finished, Job would go and pray for them and offer burnt offerings on their behalf just in case they had sinned against God. Just in case they had cursed God in their hearts. He wanted his children to have the strongest relationships with God and now all ten of them are dead from the same tragedy. How could it get worse? Think about the worst day in your life. The worst 24-hour period that you've ever lived through. When I think about mine, my worst day doesn't even touch this day. Job lost all of his possessions. He lost all of his riches. He lost all ten of his children. And guess what? It just gets worse. It keeps going. We see the second round in chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, where now that he's lost all of his possessions, the only other thing he could lose was his own personal health, and that's exactly what happened. The Bible says in chapter 2 and verse 7 that loathsome sores appeared. He was struck with them all over his body, these great big boils. Imagine what that would have been like. might be easy to read right over that. Job couldn't have stood up pain-free. Every time he stood, every time he took a step, it was painful. Do you know why? Because there were sores on the bottom of his feet. He couldn't sit down. 
without feeling a great amount of pain. You know why? Because there would have been sores all down his back and all down his thighs. He couldn't lay down on his stomach, on his side, on his back without feeling great amount of pain because from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, the text says, he was covered with these loathsome sores. How painful were they? Well, you look in verse number 8. The Bible says he was taking broken pieces of pottery and scraping the boils, scraping the sores just to get a little bit of relief from the pain. He lost his health. And then to cap it all off in verse 9, he lost his wife. Here's the one person who's supposed to stand by his side. Here's the one person who he's united with as one flesh. Here's the one person who's supposed to support him for richer or for poorer, for sickness and in health, in abundance and in need. His wife looks at his pitiful condition and tells him in verse number 9, why don't you just curse God? Look at all this that's happened in your life. Why don't you just curse God and die? His wife didn't die like his children did, but spiritually they were separated from one another. Why don't you just curse God and allow Him to take your life? When you look at Job's trials, he experienced a lot, didn't he? He lost everything. He lost his possessions. He lost his riches. He lost his children. He lost his health. He lost his status. And he lost his relationship with the person who was closest to him, his wife. What was the purpose of all of that? What was the purpose of everything that Job went through? Why did all of these trials come upon him all of a sudden? Was it just circumstance? Was it just a stroke of bad luck that Job went through? When you look in chapter 1, verses 6-12, through 12, and chapter 2, verses 1-6, through 6, all of the suffering that Job goes through is tied to a, two conversations that took place in the heavenly realm. All of his suffering, all of his trials stem from two different conversations that took place between God and Satan. If you look at the very first verse of this book, Job chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible says that Job was a man who was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He wasn't just physically rich, he was spiritually rich. He lived every day in faithfulness to God, in fear of God, reverence for God, turning away from those things that God would not desire for his life. Satan knew that. Satan knew what kind of person Job was. And in the two conversations that he had with God, it becomes very clear that he wanted to destroy Job. Satan wanted to destroy Job spiritually. Satan wanted to destroy Job's relationship with God. The text tells us in chapter 1 and verse 11 and chapter 2 and verse 5 that Satan wanted Job to curse God to his face. When you look at the two conversations, of course, this is a paraphrase, but this is kind of what it looked like. God, don't you know, the only reason that Job fears you, the only reason that Job is faithful to you is because you blessed him so much. You've given him so much. You've protected him. You've provided for him for years and years now. And the only reason that he desires a relationship with you is because you poured out physical blessing in his life. If you were to take all that away, he'd curse you to your face. If you were to take away all of his possessions, his health, his relationship with his wife, his children, if you were to strip that from him, he wouldn't desire a relationship with you any longer. So God allows Satan to put Job to the test. God setting the parameters, setting the boundaries, 
allows Satan to cause these trials in Job's life, one of them right after the other, and the purpose is very clear. Satan wanted to destroy Job. Satan wanted to use Job's trials. He wanted to use the pain in Job's life to destroy his relationship with God, to cause him to look up to God, not to bless God, but to curse Him. Over the last three weeks, we've been talking about passion killers. We've been looking at these series of lessons for the past couple of months about having a passion for God. In the last three weeks, we've been talking about passion killers. Tools that Satan tries to use to kill our passion for God. Tools that Satan tries to use to extinguish the fire in our hearts for Jesus. Two weeks ago, we talked about complacency. Last week, we talked about people. Can you see Satan's tool in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2? Satan tries to use Job's trials to destroy his passion. And I think he does the same thing with us. Oh, it's not just happenstance. It's not just a stroke of bad luck. Satan wants to use the difficulties that we go through in life to kill our passion for God. Satan wants to use your pain. He wants to use my pain to cause us to curse God. He wants to use our tribulations to extinguish the fire in our hearts for Jesus. And so here maybe we need to pause and we need to reflect for just a second. Are we allowing Him to do that? Are we allowing Satan to use the trials in our lives to kill our passion for God, to extinguish the fire in our hearts for Jesus? Is Satan winning in this? I don't want him to win. Do you? I don't want my passion, my enthusiasm for Jesus to be killed as a result of the trials that I go through. So how should we respond? How should we respond when Satan attempts to use the difficulties in our lives against us? When he attempts to use the trials in our lives to kill our relationships with our Creator? Well, how did Job respond? Based on Job's response in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, when Satan tries to use our trials to kill our passion, number one, we need to spend time in worship. Chapter 1 and verse 20 is so interesting to me. In verse 19, Job just received word that all ten of his children were dead. They died in the same tragedy. How did Job respond to that? What was his immediate response? What would your immediate response be? Chapter 1 and verse 20, Job is mourning. These are outward signs of inward pain. Job arose, he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. If you didn't have this verse sitting in front of you, how do you think it would end? He's mourning. He's falling down on the ground. He's tearing his clothes. He's shaving his head. He's going through so much pain, feeling so much pain. What is he going to do next? God, this is all your fault. God, I don't love you anymore. This is it for you and me. Our relationship is over. Is that what he did? Notice how this verse ends. It says, Then Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and what? Underline this. He worshipped. 
especially when we go through difficulties in life, we need to recognize our need for worship. To spend time in worship. Especially when you go through trials, worship might be the last thing on your mind. When you're hurting and you're going through difficulty in life, worship might be the last thing that you want to do. But we need to recognize our need for it. I believe that the most powerful worship comes from those kind of circumstances. The most powerful worship that we offer to God comes from hearts that are broken. So that's when worship becomes intimate. That's when worship is stripped away of everything else. And it's me and my broken heart falling down before God like Job verse 21, blessed be the name of the Lord. Even when life is difficult, God is still worthy. Even when life is hard, He is still worthy. He's still deserving of our worship. Even when life is painful, we have a need to worship. We have to recognize that. That especially when life is hard, when Satan used to, tries to use our trials to kill our passion for the Lord, like what we're doing right now, we need to spend time in worship to God because He remains worthy. Number two, when Satan tries to use our trials to kill our passion, we need to recognize God's sovereignty over our lives. We have to recognize that God is in control. Job recognized that. As he fell down mourning and he worshipped the Lord, in verse 21, he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. One thing about Job's perspective, he doesn't see the entire story like we do. We're able to see what's happening in the spiritual realm. Job is not privy to that. Job doesn't see that. He doesn't know what's going on behind the curtain. But his words are powerful nonetheless. The Lord is given. Job recognized that everything he had in his life didn't belong to him. He didn't earn it. It's not his. God gave it to him. And if God gave him all of the possessions of his life, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 10 children, if God gave him all of that, God has the right to take it away. And so Job says, look, God, in your infinite wisdom, if you decide to give, I'm going to accept it. Blessed be your name. God, if in your infinite wisdom you decide to take away, I'm still going to worship. I'm still going to trust. I'm still going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He recognized God's sovereignty. Even though it was painful for him in the moment, he recognized that God was in control. God gives. God takes away. We have to recognize the same thing. Our possessions don't really belong to us. They're not really ours. They've been given to us by the hand of our God. If our God has given us those things, guess what? He has the right to take it away. If in His infinite wisdom He decides to give, then we should trust Him. And we should remain faithful to Him in the midst of it. If in His infinite wisdom and knowledge He decides to take away, then we should trust Him. And we should acknowledge that He will always make the right choice. That an all-knowing, all-powerful, omnipresent God is in control. And I'm going to trust that even when life is hard. Number three, when Satan tries to use our trials to kill our passion, we have to abstain from sin. That's the main emphasis of Job's response. You see it a couple of different times. In all of these things that happened in his life, he didn't sin in action with his body. He didn't sin in word with his lips. 
Sometimes our trials can cause us to go down really dark paths. Sometimes as a result of the pain we feel, we're tempted and we give in to the temptation of doing things we know we shouldn't do, saying things we know we shouldn't say in order to deal with the pain. According to Job, we can't go down that path. We have to abstain from sin. We cannot allow our trials to allow to cause us to wander into the darkness. That's what Satan wants. And we can't allow him to have it. Number four, when Satan tries to use our trials to destroy our passion, we have to uphold God's justice. In verse 22, the Bible says, in all this, and all that Job went through, he did not sin. We talked about that. But then notice the last part. He did not charge God with wrong. Satan wanted him to. Satan wanted Job to doubt and question God. Satan wanted Job to criminalize God. God, you're in the wrong. You've sinned against me. You've treated me unfairly. And he wanted Job to victimize himself. But he didn't do it. He stood up against that. He upheld God's justice. Job realized God doesn't do wrong. God is perfect and infinite in every imaginable way, even in ways that we can't imagine. If God can't do wrong, Job had no reason to point at him and to tell him that he's done wrong, to charge him or to accuse him of wrongdoing. Job chose to uphold God's justice. We have to make that choice too. In our trials, Satan tries to kill our passion by causing us to question God, causing us to doubt God. He wants to, us to view ourselves as the victim and he wants us to view God as the criminal. God, you did me wrong. You've treated me unfairly. You sinned against me. God doesn't do wrong. God is perfect, infinite in every imaginable way. If that's the case, we have no reason to charge him with wrong. Even when things go wrong in our lives, we have to uphold his justice. We cannot charge wrong to God's account. Number five, even when Satan uses great trial to try to kill our passion, we have to trust God. We have to trust in Him regardless of life's circumstances. In chapter 2 and verse 9, his wife spoke to him saying, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Job responds to her with a rebuke, number one, but then he responds to her with the question, Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Again, remember his perspective is limited, but his point is powerful. He looks at his wife and says, think about those times when things were good. Think about those times when we had all of our possessions, when we had all of our children, when this relationship wasn't strained, whenever I had my health to its fullest capacity. We trusted in God then. We trusted in God when everything was good. Now what about when everything falls apart? What about when life becomes painful? What about when life becomes difficult? Are we not going to trust Him then? Are we going to receive good from the Lord and not evil? We have to trust in God regardless of what our circumstances look like because sometimes our circumstances look like a roller coaster. One minute they're up, and then in a split second they're down. And then they build back up and things are going well and then they go down again. We can't allow our trust in God to follow our circumstances up and down. 
Our, circum- our trust in God should not be dependent on our circumstances because if it is, I'm going to trust Him when things are good, when I'm having good days, and I'm not going to trust Him when things are bad. It's not easy, but it's easier to trust God when things are going well in our lives. But what about when things fall apart? What about when the cracks start to show? What about when it all comes tumbling down? Are we going to trust Him then? Job did. And I think that we should too. And then finally, number six, when Satan tries to use our trials to kill our passion, we have to accept help. We should be willing to accept help. In verses 11-13, through 13, Job's three friends make a plan to come to him. The text says the purpose of that was to give him sympathy and to comfort him. Job didn't turn them away. Job accepted their help. As Job was sitting in the ash heap, he allowed them to sit down next to him. And they sat down next to him, according to the text, for seven days and for seven nights, not saying a single word. He even allowed them to speak throughout the majority of the book. When you continue reading Job, even though, according to the end of the book, their words weren't right, their words weren't true, he still allowed them to speak. He was willing to accept their help. Sometimes we're not willing to accept help. I don't understand why that is. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's a fear of having that intimate connection with another person and letting somebody in. Maybe it's just not wanting to put somebody out. But when we're going through difficulties and somebody offers help, we should be willing to accept that. If we're sitting in the ash heap and other people want to sit with us, we should let them. Let them sit there. Let them talk to us. Let them do what they can to provide sympathy and comfort. It's not just about help from God, but it's about help from one another. I think when you look at that list, thinking about Job's response, basically, if we were to put it in summary, what we could say is this, that when Satan tries to use our trials to kill our passion, we should continue in the faithfulness that we had before the trial even began. That's what Job did. Back in chapter 1 and verse 1, like we said, Job was upright. He was blameless, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That's who he was before the trials began. Guess, where he, guess who he is in chapter 2 and verse 13? Guess who he is throughout the entirety of the book? Guess who he is when you come to the end of the book and he has the opportunity to speak with God. Even though he has questions, he's still upright. He's still blameless, fearing God and turning away from evil. He didn't allow his faithfulness to be diminished by his trials, and we shouldn't either. In summary, when Satan tries to use the difficulties of our lives to kill our passion, we have to continue in the faithfulness that we had before the trials even began, and I would suggest to even grow in that faithfulness. You remember who we mentioned at the very beginning, Horatio Spafford, remember his story? He lost his fortune, lost his son, lost all four of his daughters. When we left him, when we ended the story, he was standing on a ship in the exact location where his daughters drowned to death. When the captain told him that that was the place where it happened, do you know what he did? You know, just like Job, he could have responded in a number of different ways. But what he did was, he picked up a pen and a piece of paper and he started writing down his thoughts. His thoughts, I would suggest, are probably familiar to you. He wrote down the words, and of course there's words after these. When peace like a river attendeth my way, 
when sorrows like sea billows roll. Well, hold on just a second. Tell me about what you went through again. You lost a fortune. You lost all five of your children. And now you're in the exact spot where your four daughters met their death. What are your thoughts? When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, he's on the ocean, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. When you think about Horatio Spafford's example, how he responded to his trials, when you think about Job's example, how he responded to his trials, the question is, is it well with your soul? Satan wants to use our trials to kill our passion for God. We can't allow that to happen. We have to continue to be passionate for the Lord despite difficult circumstances. We have to continue in the faithfulness that we had before the trial even began. The Lord gives. The Lord is taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, it's going to be really hard to continue in that faithfulness in the midst of trial if you don't have it before the trial. Are you living a faithful life to God now? If you're not, we'd love to assist you. Are you going through something difficult? Are you dealing with some kind of trial in life that is really weighing on your heart? We, we'd love to pray for you. We're offering help, and we'd love for you to accept that help. As together, we stand and sing, Seth leads us. It's a little bit more fitting for this moment, uh, Tyler. That lesson was lesson was great, and there's a song that kind of punches you in the gut. And if you will back up a couple slides, we'll do it as well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when
Good morning once again. We certainly are encouraged by your attendance here today.